0: Welcome to Investing with IBD for November 26, 2019. I'm your host, Arusha Pires. And with me today is Patrick Healy. He is a 20-year veteran of the financial services industry and the founder of Caliber Financial Partners. Thanks for being here, Patrick. Yeah, my pleasure. On today's podcast, we will talk about the current markets, avoiding emotional decisions, and we will go over a few current ideas. Uh, But let's first start off with the current market. We are in an uptrend. Four distribution days on the S&P 500, three on the NASDAQ. The indices continue to hit new highs, and more stocks are breaking out, too. So the environment continues to be strong. Patrick, what are your thoughts about this market?
1: So I'm certainly uh, excited and happy to see the market trading the way it is. Um, But um, I will say, uh, without Just sort of some mini corrections along the way. It is something that is a bit concerning. Uh, I will say um, a lot of the uh, market dynamics are favorable right now. We just received our third interest rate cut, so the Federal Reserve has indicated that we're kind of in a steady state. I think that's actually what's fueling the market and certainly some expectations around a a trade deal with China. Um, That being said, um, I, I think to have a little bit of a pause or even some mini-corrections along the way uh, would be healthy for the stock market. Uh, In the absence of that, uh, what you get is more of a boom-bust cycle, and that could be troubling as we get into the end of the year. Uh, There are some technical factors with loss selling, so on and so forth. Um, And so, um, I am excited uh, about how the market's performing, but also trying to be cautiously optimistic.
0: Yeah. Now, last year we had that 20% correction. Uh, for a little while, uh, so now would you expect a, a little bit of a pullback when you talk about mini correction, like a five percent, ten percent, or something like that? Would make you a little bit uh, that would make you a little bit more optimistic then, or yeah, anywhere anywhere from a three to five percent, I think, would be
1: healthy for the yeah. market. I think twenty is uh, certainly exaggerated, and I think why we saw that last year. Uh, was a lot was uh, much more so Fed driven, and I don't think we're going to see that going into the end of 2019.
0: No, that that, that yeah, that would be bad again <laughs> if we had that. So Patrick, how did you get started in the industry? You know, what what was the path that you took to to end up where you are right now? Sure.
1: So I uh, graduated college in 1996. Uh, worked for two investment banks out of college: Donaldson, Lufkin and Red for three years, then ultimately Lehman Brothers for close to eight years. Um, I left Lehman in 2007. Uh, coincidentally, it ended up being about 15 months before they filed yeah, the bankruptcy. Yeah, perfect 50. timing. Wow. Uh, lucky, I think, and yeah. not something that I was anticipating. Um, but uh, it was a difficult time in the job market, as you might imagine, with the right. financial crisis. I had my securities licenses and wanted to, uh, to try out as an advisor. Um, I had gone to NYU for my MBA while working at Lehman, majored in finance and entrepreneurship, and really wasn't able to utilize that skill set in a big, firm environment like Lehman. Um, So what I do now is much more entrepreneurial. I get to work with individual clients, really see firsthand the impact that you have on them, um, and it's something that I really enjoy. Um, So I have been a financial advisor for a little over 11 years, and I've owned my own firm uh, for just over six years.
0: Now, when working with clients, now, obviously, I, I'm assuming the biggest challenge is handling the client's emotions when you go through some of these downturns, or when the markets get really volatile and they're giving back uh, some of the gains in their portfolio. How how do you handle that? How do you approach that? So, one of the things that I think
1: a lot of uh, advisors underappreciate or underestimate is how much psychology is involved in working with individual clients. Um, and working in the financial markets. And that's something I spend an awful lot of time on. Um, I do pick individual securities for clients in the accounts that I manage. I have discretionary authority. And so it allows me to really intimately know each position that I'm buying for a client's portfolio. I do my own research. I do extensive amount of research. And so when there is a period of volatility or there might be a sell-off in a particular sector or name, I can really handhold that nervous client through that environment. Remind them why uh, we invested in, in the position in the first place. Um, and really that's where I earn my compensation is mm-hmm. helping people avoid emotional mistakes.
0: And when, when you're going through the, the equity research process, you know what, what are the things that really stick out to you that makes a, a great stock?
1: A lot of it has to do with the sector or the, the strategy that we're trying to tap into. Obviously for growth names, Uh, They're not going to have the same earnings uh, figures that a more stabilized or value name would have. And so you're looking at other types of factors. Um, If it's in a a healthcare biotech sector, for example, you're looking at drug trials. You're looking at institutional ownership. You want to make sure that they have a large enough cash position to allow them to go through their research and development cycle. Um, if it's a more value-oriented name, you're looking for uh, a healthy dividend um, yeah. and good dividend coverage ratio. Uh, you want them to be in a sector that is not um, at risk of being um, disrupted by new technology, and so those are some of the things that I consider.
0: And what about a market environment? That plays a huge part in all these stocks. You know, how, how do you get a gauge on, on that, um, or where we are in the cycle, or potentially are in the cycle?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So, uh, you know, some of it, it, depending on where we are in the cycle, and I think we're we're sort of in the late innings, even though uh, the 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 economic statistics are, are, are quite favorable. Um, a lot of times, when there's sort of a, a market disrupting event or black swan event, uh, God forbid, yeah. uh, you don't see that coming necessarily. Right. And so, you're kind of trying to be proactive, uh, not knowing when that's going to happen, but trying to guard against that as markets continue to trade up and valuations get pressed. Uh, as I said, I think we're in a late, uh, late innings of the cycle. Um, it doesn't mean it can't continue for a while. Right. Um, but I think we try and get a bit more defensive. Uh, we're holding larger cash positions than we would otherwise. We're positioning in some more defensive names. Okay. And, um, and you know the growth names may continue to grow, and I, I certainly hope they do. Um, But again, without those many corrections along the way, at some point we're going to be back in a recession. It's inevitable. Um, I don't know what's going to trigger that, but we want to be prepared for that and not reacting to it when we're already in the middle of it.
0: Yeah, and also talking about cycles, there's a cycle to the the client too, right? Realizing where they are in the cycle and and the strategies change uh, depending on where, where they're actually at at that point.
1: Absolutely. When, when a client's in accumulation mode because they're in their working years and perhaps their you know their earnings power is at its, its peak, um, those are easier times for me to manage through. Yeah. But when a client approaches retirement or is in retirement and they need to draw down on those assets, I can't position them in uh, high uh, growth names per se because they may need to tap into those assets, before the investment thesis can play out, and, um, and 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 they may be forced to sell out of a position uh, before it's fully matured, and perhaps at a loss. And so that's something I have to avoid for clients that are retirees or those that are drawing down on assets currently,
0: or even generating income from those assets too. Do you use uh, do you use like a covered call strategy, things like that, to? Uh,
1: I do use options trading okay. for certain clients. Uh, I do sell some covered calls to generate some additional income. Uh, and I think that's a pretty good strategy to take advantage of where we are in the cycle. Right, uh, Valuations are pressed. Um, if you can generate some additional cash by selling some call options on held positions, that's a good strategy. Um, I do use options trading more of a, as a risk measure as well, um, buying some put protection, uh, I can't get into sophisticated strategies for clients just because I'm precluded uh, from doing so uh, by FINRA standards. but uh, to the extent that I could use covered calls or maybe some protective puts, that's a strategy I'll employ for clients.
0: And if people are interested in learning more about these, do you have any are there some good places to go and learn about some of these income generating uh, events or, or strategies?
1: Yeah, so there, there's a number of uh, online publications or sites that cater to the retail investor community. And I've used Investopedia before. I've contributed to that site. Uh, Kiplinger is another good one. And there really are quite a number of them. A quick Google search will get you a, a pretty extensive list.
0: Perfect. So the indices continue to make new highs, and more stocks continue to participate in this rally. Let's take a quick break, but when we return, We are going to talk about psychology and how it's best or why it's best to avoid emotional decisions when it comes to investment decisions. Stay tuned. Hey, Arusha here with a big announcement. We have launched a brand new interactive video broadcast called IBD Live. IBD Live takes you behind the curtain to see how professionals trade. Log on and watch live as IBD's analysts and portfolio managers follow the first hour of market action and pick winning stocks. You get to listen to our conversations, see our screens, and ask us questions all in real time. If you've ever wanted to trade alongside a team of experts, this is your chance. Go to investors.com slash IBD live and sign up to get your first two weeks for free. Patrick Keely is our guest on Investing with IBD. Okay, Patrick, let's get into psychology and more specifically, avoiding emotional decisions. It's it's amazing. Once you put real money on the line in the market, it gets very, very emotional. Uh, It certainly
1: does. And there's the risk uh, for an inexperienced investor or someone that caters to their emotions to chase stocks when they start trading up again, for fear of missing out. FOMO is a pretty powerful uh, motivating factor. Um, And then the opposite is maybe perhaps even more powerful, the fear of losing everything, is when the sky seems to be falling. Get me out of the market. Put me on the sidelines. I can't stomach any more volatility. And then inevitably, they miss out on a recovery. And so those are two very powerful diverging emotions that
0: I spend a lot of time um, helping clients avoid. And and so, what what are some of those those strategies, or how how do you overcome those? Because especially with the clients, I mean, like a two thousand eight, I can't I can only imagine trying to talk talk to to people at that point uh, when when they got caught in in and lost like fifty percent of their portfolio.
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's a difficult experience to have to go through, uh, especially when many people work their entire lives, especially for older uh, folks and. Lesson learned, perhaps they need to be a bit more defensive as they approach that that, that later in life in retirement, yeah. um, but, uh, but certainly to have worked for 20, 30 years and to see a large percentage of your nest egg literally wiped out in what felt like a month or less, um, but what do you do at that point, right? The damage is done. Do you park your money and miss out on what ultimately will be recovery? Uh, and some people did. And I know they're kicking themselves now. And now they're thinking about, hey, do I get back into the market? I don't want to miss out on this bull market. Um, they really should be uh, taking a much more cautious approach because the time to be uh, holding firm was um, sort of down at the, the bottom of the cycle in 08 and 09. Um, you know, obviously hindsight is twenty right. twenty. But again, if you're an inexperienced investor and you're emotional, and you don't think that you can maintain a, a cooler head or have a, an objective investment thesis as to why you bought a position or positions, then perhaps you should put your faith in uh, somebody that does have the experience and that is making decisions based, based off of sound methodology as opposed to um, emotional.
0: And, and so let's go over an example of, of why to, to buy a stock. So you, you have, have a stock and, and it's like, okay, here's a objective. Here, so XYZ stock. You know what? What what type of objectives do do you look for on this and to to come up with that game plan, really, to, to go forward?
1: Yeah, so I, I certainly will look at a lot of the financial ratios that a particular company is showing. Right? Okay. What is their uh, their PE ratio? Not just uh, trailing, but really forward looking. What's their PE growth uh, ratio? That's yeah. indicative of a a growth aim and 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 the likelihood that. Um, they will be able to uh, achieve a higher share price going forward. Um, I look at free cash flow. That is uh, the health and wellness of a company, and the ability to generate cash uh, allows a company to uh, fuel future growth, but also it helps hide some mistakes. So when you're operating really thin and you don't have the liquidity or cash profile, um, one, you have to make some difficult decisions as a growth uh, stock or company, but also, if you make some mistakes managerial or competition-wise, those are going to be highlighted when you're cash-strapped. And so that's, that's definitely an important consideration. Um, one of the other things that I, I believe I, I touched upon earlier is what kind of institutional ownership do these mm. companies have? It's a big one. Um, and that can easily be gauged by combing through 13F filings, which... Uh, institutional investors have to publish 45 days after the quarter end. Look at some of the expert investors. Where are they taking some of the bigger positions in names? Um, Because a lot of times they have board representation. They uh, spend a lot of time doing extensive research. And if they're going to take a large position in a company, it's because they think it's going to go up. And so you can kind of piggyback off of that strategy a little bit and uh, put your money with the smart Smart
0: investors. Yeah, uh, we, especially here at IBD, we we definitely always advise that. Look at the, you always want to make sure there's some big institutions behind it, so then you have some powerful friends on your side. So even when the stock sells off, they're going to come and start defending it at a, at a certain point to, to prevent it from getting really out of control.
1: It, it's true, and uh, and and if a company. Does unfortunately fall into mismanagement, perhaps, uh, you know, an institutional investor with a sizable position yeah. uh, could easily become an activist and they're lobbying on your behalf and the other shareholders. And that's a good position to be in. You want to have strength in the name if for some reason um, the management is overpaid or they're just not executing on their initiatives.
0: Yeah, and, and another thing, we always use the institutions kind of as a confirmation. So if you if you see what you think is a great idea, and but you don't see any great institutions behind it, you know, you're missing something, because they definitely looked at those ideas, but they decided to pass on it. True, true. Or it's just a smaller
1: company and it doesn't fall within their investment mandate, or they think that the cycle may take too long to develop uh, with a particular name. And so, You know, if you want to have some exposure in a a, a company like that to have as part of your portfolio, just keep the holding at a a very small level, right? don't put, don't overextend yourself. Uh, As you said, if if the institutions are not at least sniffing around and taking a pilot position in the name, uh, it's maybe something you want to avoid or keep to a small exposure
0: position. And and, and talking about position sizes, what, what do you recommend for your clients on position sizes? You know, what, what, what's your typical kind of position for, for stocks and things like yeah,
1: that? Yeah, so I would say the high conviction names, yeah. maybe 5%. Uh, again, it depends on how much money the client has and what their income needs are currently or in the next few years. But I would say uh, you want to keep even the high conviction names to 5%. Um, and then obviously some of the maybe smaller cap growth names that you just touched upon not more than 1%, or really half a percent
0: would be more appropriate. Yeah, because then you could definitely ride up the volatility a lot better when, when those things if, whip around. If, if you're going to lose money in a
1: name, you want to kind of limit your
0: losses and
1: say, hey, okay, it didn't work out, but um, you know, we're not going to be severely punished on a portfolio level.
0: Yeah. Now, what about earnings season, too? And, and maybe the position sizes are, are going to help here, but these days, it, it's amazing with earnings season how these stocks will just jump up dramatically on earnings or gap down uh, out of nowhere, and and it's hard to protect against that. Do you have any suggestions for that? Yeah, so
1: that's also a good question. and uh, And yes, there's a lot of pricing activity around earnings season. And I would say, if you're a cautious investor, and you're holding a name and it happens to run up into earnings, well, there's nothing that says you can't sell that position prior to the announcement, or at least cut back half of your position, because you just don't know what the outcome is going to be or how the market's going to react to it. And so if you do get a run-up into earnings, uh, it may be prudent to kind of trim off a portion of your position um, and wait to see and and get more clarity on how the numbers look. A lot of it is guidance-related, not so much uh, the prior quarter, um, so even if they had a good quarter and they beat earnings and they beat revenue, if they issue light guidance going forward, uh, you know the stock is likely going to sell off, and uh, and that may leave people scratching their head, saying, "Well, I don't get it. They they had a great quarter, right. but uh, the market is very much forward-looking, and so you're looking at no not only the guidance, uh, uh, excuse me, the earnings from the prior quarter, but the guidance going forward.
0: And uh, and so when, when a stock runs up in earnings, you know, selling it off. Uh, do, you, do you try to get, come up with some kind of target prices for all of your positions, or are you looking for a certain percentage, hey, if I'm up 20% on a position, this is where I'm going to ideally sell it? How, how do you how do you usually approach that?
1: Yeah, so with the positions that I am looking to both uh, acquire as well as sell for clients, I, I kind of have a, la- a laddered approach, right? I'm trying to leg into positions okay. um, as a stock, perhaps. Sells off, you can buy some shares and then look for a lower entry point for, to to get more shares and then ultimately consolidate your position at um, perhaps what you think is going to be the the, the bottom. Um, it's very difficult to time the absolute bottom or the absolute top, right, so exactly. try not to uh, beat yourself up over that. But again, as well uh, on the upside, when you're looking to sell out of a position, you know if a stock trades up 25, 30 percent, you need you need to be pulling back some some of the exposure. If it trades up 50%, you know, peel off a bit more. And if you double your stock, uh, and and, and that's a great outcome, don't be piggish, right? I mean, that's, you know, and and, and some of that caveat was saying, it depends on the sector you're investing in, right? So value names that trade up, a lot of the technology names like Apple or Google have done incredibly well this year. Um, 60, 70% runs. Uh, that's not sustainable indefinitely. And so I've been kind of looking to call some of those positions in recent weeks uh, just because there still remains some uncertainty around the trade war. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the market is kind of pricing in that we're going to get a deal done and maybe a big deal, and I am not certain that that's going to be the case. So I think it's prudent to pull back some exposure, especially in the names that could be impacted by the, uh, the trade
0: war yeah and, and that's part of managing your emotions too right a lot of times and this is something that I've found over the years with investing the hardest is when I'm up uh, good on a position big on a position uh, it's hard for me to sell because I'm finally right on that position he's like you know I, I made made a judgment call I, I executed it and now I'm up on it you know if I sell now it could go up even higher. It can,
1: and, and you know there's that risk of seller's remorse, so to speak, right. Right? And, right? And all the more reason to maybe consider selling a percentage of your holdings. Right? It's not an all or nothing. Right? So if, if you sell 30% of your holdings in a particular name and the stock continues to run, well, great. You still want it to go up because you still hold additional shares. Right. And if it sells off, well, then you feel like, okay, maybe you require those shares that you sold at a certain level, but now you're getting in at a better entry point and you're and you're booking a
0: profit. Perfect. Manage your emotions and following a solid plan will help you become more successful in the markets. Coming up next, Patrick and I will talk about three stock ideas. We'll be back.
1: Hi everyone, it's Alyssa Quorum with Investors Business Daily here and I want to tell you all about our new series, Investing Strategies with IBD at NASDAQ, where we're coming to you each week from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. Our show is all about helping investors make smarter decisions with their money by providing actionable insights. We'll analyze current market conditions through IBD's proven market timing perspective. We'll have analysts
0: sharing the inside scoop on the hottest growth stocks from top performing sectors. We'll walk you through the best tactics for buying and selling top stocks and ETFs to give you an edge with your investments. And we'll get the latest strategic insights from trending companies straight from the executives themselves. Investing strategies starts now. We are back with Patrick Healy on investing with IBD. Okay, Patrick, let's get into some current ideas that are on your radar. And the first stock that we have is ticker symbol AMRN Ameren Corp. And these guys are a biotech and they've been doing pretty well over the last year. What, What do you like about these guys? So there's a number of
1: things I like about Ameren, uh, and that's a name that I just started following earlier this year and added to a uh, position for clients. It's an Irish-based firm in the biotech space. Uh, they have FDA approval on uh, their cardiovascular drug. It's called the SEPA, okay. um, and uh, last week they had an adcom or an advisory committee meeting with the FDA um, as they're applying for an expanded label for that same drug. It's currently approved for people with high triglycerides, um, and they're trying to uh, get an expanded label uh, to allow a much, much larger percentage of population to be treatable uh, with the same drug. The ad combo was 16-0 in favor, um, and the FDA meeting is uh, scheduled for December 28th. Um, There's some speculation in the market that they may even uh, receive approval prior to that, that date. Um, and really, uh, the debate right now is over what the label warning is going to say uh, and how expansive the population uh, will be for that expanded label. So, um, one of the other things, like it's it's a huge market. Mm-hmm. There's it, it really could stand to be a blockbuster drug. The the best performing drug I believe is Lipitor from Pfizer, which is now off patent. So uh, I think Amarin is a very attractive takeover candidate. Large institutional ownership from a a very well-known healthcare hedge fund uh, by the name of Baker Brothers. Um, They have somewhere around 800 million, I believe, in exposure in the company. Uh, That is a very, very substantial bet by very, very smart gentlemen. And so, I I think this company is a likely takeover candidate. Um, And there was a pullback in the stock last week as an analyst kind of uh, issued a, a more of a
0: bearish report. Um, and uh, I, I took that as a gift to, to acquire more shares. And so last year, it looks like last September in 2018, it had a big jump there. Was that, like an, was that an FDA approval uh, or what, did you remember what happened there? It was just a monster-monster yeah. jump. So that,
1: that was the FDA approval for okay. the first indication for FACEPA yeah. um, and, uh, and the, the, the ADCOM meeting that took place a week or so ago was for expanded label to treat a much, much larger population. Yeah. Uh, Again, the debate is over whether it's uh, going to be for primary uh, preventative measures or secondary um, and how big that population uh, can be. And there's a lot of watchful eyes on that FDA decision going into the end of the year. If it's a favorable outcome and a broad uh, label um, indication, this stock is going to be a, a real blockbuster, I think. And again, a big pharma company will likely want to snatch them up uh, before they, they grow their revenues too, too aggressively.
0: Yeah, because if, if it becomes a preventative kind of drug, it, it would be like a Lipitor, right? where everyone's taking Lipitor to lower their cholesterol and, and, and prevent the heart attack and, and things like that.
1: Correct. Right, right. It's, a, it's a huge treatable population, and uh, uh, I, uh, I certainly have been following the
0: name closely, um, and uh, you know, some big hopes for the company going forward. Okay, so that was Amarin ticker symbol A-M-R-N. Let's go to the second stock, and this is a, another biotech stock, and this ticker symbol is A-C-A-D. And this is Acadia Pharmaceuticals. This is, a, this is a company that I own shares in two here. Um, and, and what do you like about this company? You were pretty optimistic about this one, too. Certainly, certainly. And this is a name that I've followed for uh, three-plus years now. Um, they,
1: uh, they develop drugs to treat uh, psychosis-related to various indications, Parkinson's disease, dementia, schizophrenia, Alzheimer's. Um, they are currently approved for Parkinson's disease psychosis. Their drug is called Neuplazid. Uh You have likely seen some commercials on various networks. They've really expanded their marketing outreach this year, and you've seen revenues grow significantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just had, uh, a couple of months ago, they had uh, interim trial readout uh, for um, uh, um uh, for schizophrenia and it was incredibly favorable outcome of the uh the results so they were able to stop the trial mid trial save a lot of R&D money and they're going to apply for uh that other indication in the first half of 2020 uh coincidentally enough yesterday they just came out with results interim results for another treatable population for the same drug wow um, uh, um for dementia um, and, uh, it was a favorable outcome. They met their primary, uh, end goal. And so they will be developing a phase three trial for that treatable population in 2020. It'll take a couple of years, but again, um, common theme, just like Amarin, Baker brothers owns uh, North of a billion dollars of this company. <laughs> uh, they, uh, they don't make that kind of a bet unless, uh, they, Really feel strong that the company is a blockbuster and uh, ultimately could be acquired by a larger pharma player.
0: Yeah, and, and so uh, now, when when they they got approval mid trial, was that was that back in September when they they had that monster jump, like September thirteenth, the week of September thirteenth.
1: So that's that's when the stock jumped significantly. It wasn't yeah. tri- uh, approval. Let's let's be clear, okay. but the the data readout was so demonstrative that they were able to to stop the trial um, at the uh, um, at the advice of the uh, the trial experts and so they're going to move uh, right into applying for um, expanded label uh, for that population uh, in 2020 it just it, it, it first of all the company's been growing revenue significantly in 2019 they went through a bit of a kind of a rough patch in 2018 there was a, a, a negative article uh, advanced by CNN um, suggesting that there were a lot of premature deaths for the population. It it ended up being uh, debunked by the FDA. And so the the company has has certainly uh, restored its upward trajectory. Um, And again, I think this is a takeout candidate in 2020, if not sooner,
0: you know. Yeah, no, and especially, and you mentioned it again, the Baker Brothers are behind this, too, with over a billion dollars in it. So uh, you have some powerful friends. Yeah, I'm sorry.
1: These are both seven billion dollar market cap type companies. And so they kind of fall within the mid cap range. So, you know, a lot of the big pharma players like Pfizer, like Biogen, like uh, Bristol Myers, just, you know, just acquired Celgene. A lot of the big pharma players are looking to replenish their pipeline as their big drugs go off patent. And so uh, they are flush with cash, especially after the tax legislation from 2018. They're certainly looking to uh, kind of buy revenue
0: and some of the emerging technologies. And those are two names that I really, really like. Perfect. Now let, let, let's, uh, let's go to the third idea here. And, and this is a REIT and ticker symbol VTR Ventus. And uh, what do you like about uh, the, these guys? So when I manage
1: portfolios for clients, I try to take a barbell approach, right? So some of these names in the biotech space are are certainly uh, alpha generating potential, but there's right. a lot of volatility there. Right. And for, again, emotional or inexperienced investors, that's sometimes difficult to stomach. And so I am trying to create um, sort of a, a more conservative opposite end of the barbell, where you're generating more income-oriented investments. Bentos uh, is a healthcare REIT; they are the biggest player uh, in the space. Okay, um, there are a lot of very favorable uh, demographics for uh, healthcare, uh, senior care. Um, and assisted living. And so as the population continues to age and medical advancements are keeping them alive, um, then they uh, a lot of times need that care. It just creates a tremendous amount of demand with the older generation for that types of property. Ventos is the biggest player in the space. It's a healthy dividend name, five and a half percent currently. It's a name that I think uh, is less volatile than some of the smaller cap REITs. I think uh, commercial real estate is a, a favorable asset class, given the current interest rate environment, and
0: mm-hmm. I think the demographics really line up well for senior housing, and that's what Ventos plays in. And, and it's amazing how well a lot of these REITs have done over the last year, and that, that's due to the, the lower interest rates, and, and these companies just continue to acquire more and more properties.
1: So that's part of it, right? The, the better capitalized names, the names like Ventas are able to acquire smaller portfolios, smaller competitors, or just portfolios of, of real estate um, at suitable valuations. Okay. They're also able to uh, use their stock as currency. So as your stock continues to rally, uh, you may be able to issue in a secondary offering at a nice valuation without diluting your existing shareholders too much. Um, and really um, uh, improve your portfolio and, uh, and grow that portfolio. Uh, we have seen interest rates come down three times in a row now, and that's favorable for all REITs. Um, but also the economy has done very well in the United States, and there's a lot of foreign investor capital coming into the U.S. because uh, they realize it's the strongest economy, and that's uh, served very well for the real estate space and real assets in general.
0: Yeah, and, and it's interesting also with the, the senior housing. There are a number of uh, senior housing stocks that have started to hit all time highs over the last month or so. Metisys comes to mind, and uh, a few of the others in that group. They, they've just been really rallying pretty well over the last like, uh, quarter or so.
1: So that's definitely true. And, and coincidentally enough, Ventas has actually sold off uh, quite a bit. Um, their last earnings announcement. Uh, a few weeks back was, again, um, the the numbers looked fine. But in terms of forward guidance, uh, they, they're anticipating a slowdown in growth um, and really kind of having that pick up again in 2021. Okay. And so there was a negative reaction on the stock, uh, which is why the dividend yield is trading where it is and why the price is backed off from a 52 week high. I think it represents a good entry point.
0: Perfect. And and so when you're talking about the barbell approach with, with the biotechs and the more volatile stocks, those would be the ones where you have 1% positions or so to handle the volatility and try to hold it for the longer term and, and generate the alpha, right?
1: Sure, sure. You, you, you have to, And this is a tough thing, again, for people. You have to wrap your mind around the fact that you're going to lose money in some of these names. And so you want to have a basket investing approach, whether you pick 10 or 12 names individually, or you tap in through an ETF wrapper, yes. uh, and there are a number of them in the biotech space uh, that allow you to get exposure to 30 or 40 names that, uh, you know, professionally managed. But you have to uh, understand that uh, this is by no means a guarantee. Uh, drug development is a lengthy and expensive process, and uh, there will be failures along the way, and that you hope that the the names that you pick, uh, two or three of them will Overcompensate for some of the ones that will lose money.
0: Excellent. So, there are three ideas to consider and add to your watch list. Thanks, Patrick, for joining us today. That's my pleasure. That's it for this week on investing with IBD. Next week, we will have March, Mark Ritchie II on the show. He is the managing partner and chief investment officer of RTM Capital Advisors. So, that's it. I'm Arusha Pierce, and thanks for listening. And for this week's NILTS Charts, make sure to go to investors.com slash podcast, where you'll find details for each episode in the podcast episode section. And make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode.